glad that you're here. It's a full room this morning, and, and we're just so glad every one of you are here. Some of you have been invited and may be here for the first time. I want to let you know that this is a, a church that wants to welcome you. Uh, we're a church that seeks to do three things, to love God, to love people, and serve others. And that's what we believe the, the call of Jesus is on us. And so today's an opportunity for us to talk about that journey, to have a, a, a gathering together that before we are sent out, we are sent out on mission uh, with the message of good news. And so that's what I want to share today is some good news with you. Well, this is a new series. It's called Baggage Claim. And the whole idea of baggage claim is that we have baggage. Can we confess that in church this morning? We have baggage that we either drag in here or sometimes we leave it in the car because we're not sure that baggage is welcome. And so this morning, I'm asking you to bring your baggage in. It's why we have baggage on stage. This is a reminder that church is actually the perfect place to bring that. Now, some of you may think, what baggage? I know that is stuff I take to the airport. What in the world is baggage? So for those that are my age and older, there's this tool called Urban Dictionary that was helpful this week on a definition on this. Baggage is this, the definition there. An issue regarding a person's past that can affect their current disposition. Does anyone have any baggage this morning? Like some things in the past that are still with you, that are still affecting you in ways that you're aware of and sometimes ways that we're not aware of. And many of us have experienced church to be a place where it's not actually welcome to bring your baggage here. That's not actually the place you're to bring it at all. And we're saying at Greenville Oaks, bring it in. Bring it on. Because if we can't bring our baggage here, where in the world are we going to learn to sort through it? So uh, to be honest with you this morning, which is a terrible qualifier for any preacher to start out with, right? But to be honest, church has been a place where many people don't feel comfortable to do what we're trying to do over these next eight weeks. So I want to give you kind of a preview of where we're going in this series. It's going to be about two months. We're going to walk through this. And the end of this series, we're going to be launching a ministry here called Celebrate Recovery. It's a ministry that I'll tell you more about. But I want to nail one thing down from the very beginning. You're going to hear this pretty much every week, okay? As we launch Celebrate Recovery, Celebrate Recovery is not a ministry for those people. It's not a ministry for those who are only uh, drug addicts, who are only alcohol addicts or sex addicts, or name the number of addictions that you could walk through. It is a ministry for those kinds of people, but it is a ministry for every single person in this church that you can benefit from. And I'm saying that as somebody who's been through the program myself and has found transformation as a result of Celebrate Recovery. And so as we launch this, as we begin this, we've got a lot of volunteers. There are a lot of people at an info meeting on Saturday, and I'm grateful for that. But this, has the, 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 this is an opportunity as a church for us to transform our culture, to be a church that admits we have baggage and brings it here. And we want that, don't we? I hope we want that. I know for some of us, that's not the church we grew up in. This may be difficult to talk in these terms. We, we sometimes put a mask on when we came in, and we dropped it at the door only to put it on the next week. But this is a church that wants... To do that, And so uh, these are the three things in this series that I want us to kind of proclaim as a church that I'm going to walk through kind of week by week. And so the first two weeks, I want to talk about number one. And so in this series, um, these are the things I want to suggest. That if we want to be healed, first of all, we need to claim our baggage. Like if we can't claim our baggage, it's going to be real hard to work through it and work through those difficulties in our lives. Number two, the church should be a place to check your baggage. And we at Green Blows, we desire to be more of that, even more than we've been in the past. How can we be a church that welcomes all no matter where you are? If you 
want to get your life on a track toward living more like Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit in community with others who are struggling on that journey, this is a place you're safe to do that. We're going to continue to move that direction. And then number three, ultimately God wants to redeem your baggage. So this is not just about what's going on on earth here. We serve a God who wants to take that baggage and already sent his son to pay for that baggage. But there's a healing that needs to happen as well. So we're going to talk about that. Are, are you with me this morning as we launch into this? I'm really excited about the things I'm going to share. Um, and so let's pray together this morning as, I, I enter into, uh, as we enter into the message. God, this morning I pray for your spirit to be present in this room to unlock doors that have not willing to be, been willing to be opened for, for decades, God. I pray for, for marriages and relationships that are, are right now on the, the verge of collapse and, 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 and destruction at the hands of the evil one, God, but that, that people would be willing to sort through baggage because it can change relationships. Father, I've been praying all week that you would move this morning, that you would help us to address things that sometimes we don't want to address, God, and to be willing to enter into community with people who have messy lives. And that's not just those people, it's all of us. We have messy lives, God, and you bring order out of the chaos. And that's what we're asking you to do again. This morning, God, I pray you would pour through me the gift of preaching so that Christ would be formed in our hearts and in our lives. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. And everyone said, amen. Well, the question I want to start with this morning for this series is this question. It's on the screen right here. What are the entrance requirements a church should maintain? Now, everywhere you go in culture, there are entrance requirements. If you go going to kindergarten, our son's going to be going to kindergarten. There's an age requirement that you have to go to but in order to go to kindergarten. If you want to drive on the streets... You have to have a license. You have to pay registration for a car. There are certain things you have to do in order to have that right. If you wanted to go work for a business, you have to get hired. Don't just show up with a blue apron at IHOP tomorrow. Like, that's not going to work out. Think about any, all through our lives, if if you're going to go to a a health club and exercise, you've got to pay your dues or they're going to make sure you don't exercise there. Anybody in an HOA, do I have to say any more? Like, there are entrance requirements that we deal with all the time. So what are the entrance requirements to be a part of a church family? Now, in polite company, we don't ask this question because our thought is, well, everyone's welcome in church. But I want to challenge that this morning. Because here's what I believe. I believe that pretty much everyone in this room, there is someone who could walk through these doors this morning that if they were to show up and the elders and the leadership were to welcome them into this church, you might not show up next week. Like, it could be an ex-spouse. And they haven't sorted through the amends and you haven't found reconciliation. And they want to be a part of this church and you're just not sure if that would work out and if that's a good idea. Maybe you've been victimized in some way. And the person who victimized you is the person who walks in that door, never made amends, never done anything for it, but they walk in that door. My question is, what would you do the next week if they were to be welcomed into this place? Uh, Maybe it's your in-laws. It's okay to laugh as long as they're not next to you or in the building, right? Um, You know, I mean, what if they were to move to town and all of a sudden they're, you know, they're here on the same row. Like, what what do you do about that? Would you change churches? But maybe it's not individuals in our lives. It could be something else. I'm just wondering, next week, if there was a gay couple that wanted to come into these doors and wanted 
to learn to be like Jesus and learn to figure out what that means in the midst of the community and the mess we're in, would they be welcome in this place? See, these are questions. We don't think there's any entrance requirements. But when it comes to the reality of our lives, I think there are people that some of us would struggle to welcome in. And then we forget that there are people in this very body that are struggling with the very same things that we just don't acknowledge, we don't talk about, because you don't bring your baggage in here, do you? Most of us have probably a person in mind that if they walked in or a group or a person or somebody who represented something, we would struggle to continue. But isn't this a dangerous game to play? Because there's someone on your list, but the truth is you're probably on someone else's list, aren't you? If you were to walk into their church and you wanted to find a place, it would be hard for other people. But I would suggest there is an entrance requirement to be a part of this church family. But I'm going to come back to that a little bit later in our service because I want to tell some stories of Jesus to talk about how he enters into this. Now, i got to confess, because that's a great place to start in a series like Baggage Claim. I've got some baggage, and one of those pieces of baggage is I have been a very judgmental person. I grew up in a very dualistic mindset, a very black and white worldview. It's partly personality, it's partly church heritage, it's partly all kinds of things, right? Some of you grew up in a similar situation. And I knew what right and wrong was, and it was my job to try to live on the right side of things so that God would be pleased with me in some way. And it was partly personality. I was first born. I was a preacher's kid, so I felt this immense pressure. And it was never put on me by my parents to live that way. It was this self-taught pressure. It was this pressure I put on myself to live in a certain way so that people would be pleased, that I could put an example out there for my brother, so that I could put an example out for the youth group. I felt the whole weight of the church on my shoulders as a preacher's kid which I'm grateful to say I think expectations are changing and I'm grateful for the ways that you care for our minister's kids and the ways you let them be who they need to be in the season they're in and not expect sometimes what we've expected in the past. And so I was judgmental. And I am in recovery from judgmentalism. I'm working the steps right now. And if you don't believe me, talk to Holly because she can tell you I've been judgmental. But do you know where that judgmentalism emerged from? It emerged from my understanding of what the gospel of Jesus Christ was really all about. Because here's the gospel I grew up learning. It was a gospel of behavior management. Anybody grow up in the same church I did? The definition was something like this. The point of the gospel in Jesus' coming is to inspire a kind of behavior. Now, the gospel does inspire a kind of behavior. I'm not saying there's not an ethic or a way of life that Jesus commands us and calls us to live. It is a hard ethic, a hard way of living. But this is not the gospel, the behavior he taught us, to, that he brought to us. That's not the gospel message that's taught throughout Scripture. Here's another way you can say this same gospel of behavior medification that I started to believe. That if you nail it, then you don't need the grace of God. Like, if you can live in such a way, then you can make Christ's death, burial, and resurrection on the cross as if it didn't need to happen at all. And wouldn't that be great if I could live in such a way that Jesus didn't need to come? Which, if I'm God, I'm going, I gave you a gift. You might as well use it. You're not perfect. You need the grace that I have to offer. And it was a kind of gospel that was a gospel of perfectionism. It was a gospel where you end up on your deathbed and you're afraid, even though you've lived a great life and Jesus has saved your sins, that you you just don't know for sure. It's a gospel that turns you into a judgmental person. It's a gospel that tries to make Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection unnecessary. It's a gospel where we finally owe God nothing because we don't need him anymore. And it is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And it's okay to amen right now. It's okay to free yourselves from those notions that some of you may have been taught growing up. And this gospel led me to be very judgmental of others because I thought I had to prove to God that I was better than others who were struggling with their righteousness. So if I could live in a certain way and I could show that I'm better than those people, then maybe God will be pleased with me in some way. But I am here to tell you from personal experience that comparison is deadly to spiritual growth. And that happens in one of two ways. Either it leads us to pride. We compare ourselves with others and we think, man, I'm I'm so much better than they are. God, you're proud of me this morning, right? I mean, you check the box of church this morning so you can go off and judge whoever you want. That's that's where that's led sometimes. The gospel of comparison, we feel prideful about things. The other way that can go, though, is it, uh, it can lead you to despair. Because you look at others and you think, how would I ever live up? to the kind of life that these people are living. How would I, I just struggle every single day. This, this sin that just so easily you know, strangles me all the time. I just can't seem to shake it. Maybe God will never forgive me. And that's the kind of story that, and conversation that Jesus speaks up and, and speaks into in, in the Gospel of Luke. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open to, to the Gospel of Luke chapter 18. Jesus tells a story, a, a, a parable, about a couple of guys that I want to read to you this morning. Luke 18, I'll start reading in verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now before we read on, I want to tell you a little bit about Pharisees and tax collectors. If you've grown up in church all your life, you may have heard this, but this may be new to some of you, and we're we're glad you're here if this is new to you. So Pharisees were this group of people who were, 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 you know, the, the people of God had been exiled because they hadn't followed the commands of God. And so when they finally enter back into Jerusalem, into the land that God had promised to them, they're now entering in under foreign rule. The Roman Empire is over them. And this group of Pharisees were a group of people that decided, we are going to follow Scripture as clearly and as well as we can so that we don't end up in exile again. It was a good idea they were trying to pursue. We're going to try to follow the commands of God. We're going to try to know Scripture well. So the Pharisees would have been scholars, would have been teachers of the law, would have been Bible class teachers or preachers, right? This this is the group of the Pharisees. And so the Pharisees get a bad rap in the the Gospels. Jesus is always telling stories about them that are harsh. But these are are actually pretty good people trying to do the right thing. Sometimes they got out of whack when it came to that. But here's, here's the Pharisees. The tax collectors, many of them were Jews who were working for the Romans that were oppressing the Jewish people. So these are traitors. These are people who are going to work for Caesar, and they're charging all this money, enough for Caesar to get paid, but also enough for them to get paid off the top. So uh, I hope there's not any IRS agents in the room, but that's kind of who these people are, right? So you've got these two guys going to the temple to pray. You've got the preacher, the teacher, the Bible class guy, the, you know, you know. And then you've got the tax collector, and as they come to pray, uh, my question to you is, if you're God in this situation, who do you think is going to get their prayer heard? The one who's working for the Romans? I mean, that's not the right way to go. Or is it the guy who's actually upstanding that is trying to follow Scripture as clearly as he can, that's teaching and knows Torah and all those types of things? And Let's read on. Verse 11, we'll find out a little bit more about the story. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like that tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven, but but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. 
This is the story that Jesus tells. Two guys going to the temple, one a Pharisee tax collector, one prays in one way, one prays in another. What's the Pharisee doing in the story? The Pharisee is playing the comparison game I was describing earlier. God, I thank you I'm not like those people. I thank you that, well, let me just cite my resume to you, God. I, I, I tithe. I do what I should in my giving. I, I fast. I mean, how many of you fast out there? That's a big deal, right? He fasts and he tithes. This is, this is a good church member. And so he's citing his resume to God. and He says, guess what, God? I, I, I'm thank you that he's playing the comparison game. You've ever heard the story of the two guys that are in the woods camping and one guy, they, they come across this bear, right? And one guy starts tying his shoes and the other guy says, what are you doing? You can't outrun the bear. And he says, I don't have to outrun the bear. I just have to outrun you. And that's a little like what we do when it comes to this comparison game, right? Like if I'm just a little better than them, then maybe God will condemn them. And if I can just point out how my resume is better than theirs, then maybe God will see that my points have added up and I can get to this place. He's building his case with God. He's sharing his resume with God. Have you ever heard someone who's prayed this way before? Like they almost worked their spiritual resume into the prayer. Like God, I, boy, please be with, with Susie. I met her on the side of the road fixing her tire this week. And I just pray you'd You'd, you'd be with her this week. And God, I'm spending time in your word in Jeremiah. And, and, and you know, we read this together this week. And you gave me that. Like, sometimes we do this in subtle ways we don't imagine. It's one thing to see a guy at the temple pointing out people. But don't we do this in certain ways? We, we kind of sign our resume to God as if maybe he'll hear our prayers if we offer this up. And why would someone do that? Why do we do that? And I believe it's because the Pharisee believed in the gospel of behavior modification. If I can just prove I'm better than others, if I can just prove I'm good enough, then maybe God, if, if I nail it, then I don't need the grace of God. The Pharisee is self-righteous. And what does that word mean? It means I don't need anyone else's righteousness. I can be righteous on my own. But the tax collector on the other side, what does he say? He lists his resume, doesn't he? <laughs> God, have mercy on me, a sinner. He doesn't point out all the great things he's doing. What he does is he comes before God and he cites his incredible need for God. In, in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, Jesus' first sermon is the Sermon on the Mount. It's in Matthew 5, if you have your Bibles, feel free to open. Just a quick verse I want to share with you. The first words out of Jesus' mouth in a sermon in the Gospel of Matthew, the first word is the word blessed. And don't you love that? Like it's not a word of condemnation from Jesus. It's a word of blessing to those who need it. But this is what it says in Matthew 5, verse 3. This is what Scripture says. Jesus' first words in the Sermon on the Mount. You're blessed, uh, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, right? But that's hard to figure out. What does that mean? Well, the message really clears it up. I love the way the message kind of gives language to this. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there's more of God and his rule. Don't you love that? Any of you can say you're at the end of your rope this morning? Like you're hanging by just, just by a thread. God, just, I, I don't know if I can continue through the week. I just need you today. Would you come through and, and, and help me hang on? How many of you, you remember gym class growing up and that rope? Oh, I can never climb the rope, right? Just dreaded that test. Some of you loved it, right? I, I, whatever, you know. But I... I struggled. I was trying to get knot by knot. I, I didn't have any upper body strength at that time. I won't go where I was going to go anyway. But it just wasn't a good day. 
And I, I remember just hanging on the end of that rope and, and thinking, if I could just get to the top. And the story of the gospel isn't about us climbing a rope to get to God. You know what the story of the gospel is? It's about God climbing down that rope and getting in the mess with us. So you don't have to climb that rope. Those who are at the end of their rope, Jesus climbs down to you and finds you in that place. And when there's less of you, there's more of God and his rule. Isn't that good news? You don't have to climb the rope. Verse 14, the story goes on. What happened? Which one did God hear? I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. See, if you want to be forgiven, if you want to be healed, can I hear an amen, anyone this morning who wants that? Pay close attention to this story. Jesus is not impressed with religiosity. Jesus is not impressed with the number of spiritual disciplines that you've pulled off or your tithing record or or, or your fasting record or any of those things. What Jesus is impressed by is a broken and a contrite heart. What Jesus is impressed by is someone who's willing to come to him and say, my only resume is I am in need of a Savior. If you come in that place, you're going to find God. If you come in this place, well, Scripture says, who went home justified? The one we'd never expect, it's, it's the sinner, it's the tax collector. Are there anybody, anybody this morning, is there anyone who's, who's at the end of their rope this morning? Here's what I'm discovering about the gospel of Jesus. The gospel is offensive to our sensibilities. Because we grew up in a culture that teaches us that if you do the right thing, good consequences will result from that. If you do wrong things, then bad consequences will result from that. We live in a, a, a culture that desires justice. We don't always give it, and we need to be better at it than we currently are. But I think deep down, we want what's right to happen, what's fair to happen. The gospel, though, is not a build, about building a spiritual resume and hoping that God pays attention to it so we can get in. The gospel is about admitting our need and God saying, okay, I can now deal with you in this place. See, we believe in justice for all, but this gospel story is an unjust story. The story we're committing our lives to is a story about a guy who was innocent, who died for billions of people who were guilty. That's injustice if there ever was one. And that's the story that we somehow walk into. And God's anger about injustice, it's, it's still the case, and we're still trying to work for his justice. But listen, God is not impressed by the resume that we hold up or, or who we are. This is an unjust story, and we depend on a, an innocent man who died on our behalf. And the Pharisee misunderstands this. He's trying to build his confidence on the fact that he's slightly better than the robbers and the evildoers and the adulterers and even the tax collector. But Jesus hears, tells a story about a God who hears the prayer of the tax collector and isn't justifying the man who sees it all on his own. See, God is not interested in your list of spiritual accomplishments. If you're building a a resume, maybe you've got a word file right now that you're building so that when you get to heaven you can hand God the resume, like you can stop that work now because that's not the story we're committed to. According to Jesus, you are better off expressing your poverty than your pedigree. You're better off expressing your poverty, your need, that you don't have enough, that there's not enough of you, that you're at the end of your rope, than than to express your pedigree. God, I'm glad I'm not like them. I'm glad I'm living up this. I'm glad I tithe and that I, I fast and I do all these acts. No, you're better off expressing your poverty than your pedigree. We need the grace of God, amen? 
And here's where I start to dream about our future together. What, what if Greenville Oaks more and more became a place where when people have their baggage and they need a place to sort through it, they think about coming here because this is not a place where you have to check your baggage at the door. What if Greenville Oaks more and more, and I'm not saying this is not currently the case, I'm saying we just need to grow in this more and more. What if Greenville Oaks more and more became a place where robbers and evildoers and adulterers and even tax collectors showed up and they found the good news of Jesus Christ? What if this church became a place where masks didn't have to be put on to come in the door, they had to be dropped off? Because here's the deal. We have to fake our way through life so often, it feels like. We have to play this game in these different places that we go to. But what if for one hour a week we could come and we no longer had to play the game? Like this is the place you don't play the game, act the hypocrite, put on the mask. This is the place where we put our baggage on stage and say, this is who we are. God, would you do something good with us? Because here's the truth of the matter. The Apostle John says this well in, in, in 1 John chapter 1. And I, wanna, I, wanna, I want to just drill this down today as we, we, we move toward our close of the message this morning. Because I want you to, to get this as we have an opportunity to respond to the message this morning. 1 John 1, beginning in verse 8. This is the gospel I want to point to you. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. But if we claim we've not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. That is good news, isn't it? Like the deal is this, you turn in your sin, you turn in your baggage, you name and confess your sins and God says, I promise I will forgive and cleanse you of that sin. That is the best news you could receive today. But if you cover it up and you say you're without sin, well, that's a hard word, John says. You're making God out to be a liar. And I can't count the number of Sundays that I walked into church and I basically called God a liar because I wasn't honest about what I was going through and willing to put that at his feet and let him work through. And we don't need to be a church that calls God a liar, do we? We want to be a church that confesses our sin and finds healing in the midst of that. Are you with me this morning? If we confess our sins, God promises to forgive. But the hard news is if we don't confess, it's not good. So let me ask you this morning, how many of you want to be healed? Because there's a difference between forgiveness and healing, isn't there? Like, like You confess your sins, God confesses. But we're going to be talking over the next few months, next couple of months about how do we get healed of the sins we've already been forgiven of? See, we cannot heal what we don't first acknowledge. And if we don't acknowledge our sin, that's what God's trying to get us to do. Confess your sin, put it in the light, and I'm going to be able to forgive that. And if we can't do that, we're not going to be able to be healed of those things. See, the best theologians in our churches have always been in our church basements. Now, that might not work in Texas because there's not any church basements, right? But in other parts of the country, there are basements. And some of you grew up in churches like that, right? Where on Wednesday nights you'd come together, you'd have a worship service on the main floor. But in this kind of tucked away corner of the building in the basement, you had that group, AA group that would meet there, or Al-Anon group. And, you know, they'd smoke outside because they were working through alcohol. So they could, you know, you know, you know the group I'm talking about. You give them a, a tiny corner of the building to walk into. And I'm telling you, one of the greatest blessings of the American church has been the 12-step recovery meeting that's met in churches. They're some of our greatest theologians because it went from just head knowledge to actually living something out so that it saved people's lives. 
James says this in James 1.22. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. And those people in the basement have been doing it day after day. It's time for us as disciples to do the same thing. To be challenged to, to step away just from this knowledge that we know more. To actually putting into practice this gift. Step one in recovery groups always begins in this place. This is step one, if you could put that up there. We admitted we were powerless over fill in the blank. That our lives had become unmanageable. Isn't that what Luke 18 is all about? The guy who comes here? Luke 18.3, let's put that up there again. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I'm powerless. I can't do it on my own. I need some power from beyond myself to heal me in ways I cannot do it if it's just me working the steps alone. Does this sound familiar to anyone? Church, it's time to name our baggage. Which brings me back to the conversation of entrance requirements. Churches have sometimes been exclusionary groups of people. I've experienced that, and I'm guessing some of you have. Maybe you've been the very people that have been left at the door. There should be an entrance requirement to every single church. But our entrance requirement should not, not be to prove that we are somehow righteous, that we have somehow accomplished these spiritual tasks, so we're finally in the only entrance requirement at Greenville Oaks for walking through these doors and partnering with us on our journey is you you express your deep need and powerlessness and allow God to come in and fix it. If you can't express your need, we'll probably leave the doors open for you, but you're not going to find much here. It's when we actually come together and we express and say, I am powerless, God. You've got to do something. This community's got to walk with me. It's in that moment when we express our need that all of a sudden revival can break loose, that all of a sudden God can do things that he can't do if we're over in this saying, God, I thank you that I'm not like so-and-so. It's got to start with confession. So over the next few songs, the next two songs that we're going to sing in just a moment, I want you to pay close attention to me in this moment. I've been praying for this moment that God would break loose and do some things in what we're about to do. There's some cards in the row in front of you and a few chairs, not too many, so you may not have any in front of you. But there are cards here at the front. There are cards at tables to the side and in the back. What I want to encourage you to do is I want to encourage you to fill in the blank of step one. What is it that in, in your life has become unmanageable? That you're powerless to defeat. Maybe it is the first John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. We want to be a church of confession. We want to start there so that we can receive the forgiveness of God and be ready to move into healing in the weeks to come. God promises us this. That if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just. So my prayer this morning is that we would do that. That we, I want to invite you to come forward, write on these cards and put them in these, uh, put your baggage in the baggage, Right? I want to invite you during these next two songs, as many of you as possible, to find a way to go to tables, to find a way to, to write these down, to confess these things. We want to be a church that starts from a place of confession. And that entrance requirement is one thing, to say, God, we need you. So whatever it is, write this on the cart. God, I'm, I'm powerless over this. God, I, I confess this sin in my life. Don't write your name on it. The only reason you need to write your name on it would be if you want to be contacted this week. Put your info on there. We'll, we'll contact you this week if you want to do that. But this isn't about knowing sin. This isn't the old invitation where you come down and that's a, that's a sermon for another day. But today, it's all of us just getting back to level ground and confessing we have need. We need to confess. And God, you're, you're, you're the healer who does that work, who forgives and cleanses. Amen.
So during these next two songs, we invite you to do that at the tables and up front, however you need to. Just as